listening to Los Altos Institute's course on globalization and the rise of the anti-globalization movement, which ran in the summer of 2022. As I was uh, telegraphing pretty strongly last time, um, anti-globalization isn't an idea that comes to people quickly. It isn't a standard set of ideas. Uh, people have been assuming that the world economy has been getting bigger for a very long time. And they assume that that's what it's supposed to do, that it's supposed to encompass all of the peoples and civilizations of the world. And that's promised to people in a lot of religious traditions. It's rare to have religious traditions that um, are focused on the dangers of that. Uh, we certainly do start seeing that uh, amongst the earliest uh, we see in this kind of religious tradition um, comes out of Judea, um, the Hasmonean books of the Apocrypha, the Maccabee rebellion against um, the uh, Macedonian colonizers of Israel is um, it's people in the, the books of the Maccabees in the Old Testament, they search for language to describe what it is that they're worried about, what it is that they're fighting against. And it's in um, the Apocrypha, in the books of the Maccabees, uh, telling the story of Judea not long before the Roman conquest, uh, that we can see at a linguistic level the, how profound the problem of resisting globalization is. The books of the Maccabees are written um, in a language that they are criticizing. Um, they're trying, the Maccabees are trying to find words for the colonizers and what they're doing. And the word they come up with is Hellenismos. Uh, if you add ismos to an Attic Greek or a Koine Greek adjective, it means the process of becoming that thing. So uh, one of the lesser known things about the books of the Maccabees is that um, they're the first time eudaismos appears as a word. And that's what they say they're standing for when they're fighting the Romans, that, or they're fighting the Greeks, they're fighting the Babylonians, in the name of Judaismos. Now, we translate that today as Judaism, but that's not what it meant in those books. It's useful to hold on to that in your head when you think about the expansion of the global economy, because Judaism did not mean the beliefs of the Jewish people. Hellenism did not mean the beliefs of the Greeks. What Hellenism meant was being turned into a Greek. Judaism meant being turned back into a Jew. Uh, there aren't a lot of words for cultural assimilation. Uh, and here we, we see one of the first really serious um, human texts uh, wrestling with it. And that's one of the things that we struggle with when we think about globalization and its opponents. The first place people go is culture. Um, one of the reasons that right-wing conservative political movements were able to very quickly seize the political terrain abandoned by social democrats and democratic socialists over the past 10 years is that um, they're well acquainted with describing their politics in cultural terms, right? It's a lot easier to advocate for anti-globalization politics in the United States, if you call what you're doing Americanism or patriotism.
anywhere, that's an easier thing to do. If you say that what you are locally is the opposite of what globalization is turning you into, that's, uh, that's a very easy rhetorical move to make. It's almost surprising in that light that most anti-globalist social movements have appeared on the political left and not the political right. Uh, that um, nationalism is so often seen as the sole province of the political right that, um, uh, that field is yielded immediately, even when, as we'll see for most of the 20th century, People of the political right have been very eager to yield their cultural, economic, and other institutions um, to um, global forces. That uh, this has been the normal pattern. And yet we associate the right with nationalism. And that part of the problem of that is understanding the relationship between what we might think of as globalism and what we might think of as nationalism, uh, because these things, they don't exist in opposition to each other. Uh, so I'm going to give you a little uh, background. First of all, hi, Darren. Um, so first of all, it's always hard to find the origins of political ideologies because so often they take an enacted form before they take a, um, an ideological form or vice versa. Sometimes we see things described as ideologies that never turn into effective political movements at all. Uh, so it's important to, to distinguish among these things. So when we're thinking about why it is that people got this idea that nationalism is a useful defense against globalism? Because certainly that's, that's very much the assumption of the conservatives today who lead the anti-globalization movement. Well, first of all, we've got to historicize this, right? Liberalism and nationalism are things that came into being concurrently. They have a complex and rich relationship with each other. But the very idea that a state's legitimacy should be based on its shared literacy, shared language, and shared democratic institutions is a pretty surprising idea in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. That's certainly the way no state works at the time. Uh, the more languages a state speaks, the more linguistically diverse, the more religiously diverse, the more that redounds to the glory of that state. It's only been a small number of states that have experimented in the elimination of minority languages and uh, national public education uh, to enjoy the efficiencies of the liberal nation state. Something you can't create without either genocide or partition if you have a pre-existing population because populations in the old world are religiously and linguistically diverse. They're not sitting in convenient locations particularly. Uh, and that's why during the Napoleonic Wars and their aftermath, we see the beginning of partition. The first partitioning done by Europeans is um, done in, uh, the, um, uh, in the Eastern German speaking region of Europe where much of the partitioning has been done. Uh, but we see, um, Ironically, even though liberals favor the partitioning and favor the creation of these unilingual uh, omnicultural nation states, the people who beat the liberals end up doing their work for them. The people who beat the liberals end up setting up this new Europe in the 1820s and 30s. They set up Greece, 
Uh, right, and by 1924, for the first time in over 2,000 years, the majority of Greek speakers live inside Greece, something that nationalism and partition had to make happen with huge population clearances and uh, acts of mass murder in uh, present-day Turkey and Greece to make Greece Greek and Turkey Turkish. I mean, for God's sake, the Iliad was a debate about wh which was the which place was the real Greece. Uh, as a twenty eight hundred year debate concluded in nineteen twenty four, when um, um, thousands of people were moved at gunpoint across the Aegean Sea, in both directions. So we have to recognize that nationalism comes to Europe and is an inherently violent volcanic process. Only Woodrow Wilson, somebody never who had never lived in Europe a day in his life really, could decide that partition is what Europe needs to more of to become a peaceful place. So these population clearances and these vast population movements, why do we why do we think that they facilitate globalism? Well, it's here that we really have to go to Vladimir Lenin. Lenin points out that the nation state itself is an illusion created by liberalism. That nation states are not autochthonous, they're not autonomous, they're not autarkic, they don't have a self-sufficient economy. They are part of systems. Some nation states are anchors of global empires. Some are clients of global empires. So France, the nation state, anchor of a global empire stretching all the way to Vietnam, touching down in Lebanon and Syria and um, right, the Guiana region of South America. This is like, France isn't a nation state at this time. The rhetoric of nation state has allowed them to remove and deny education to a lot of linguistic minorities within mainland France. But we see that France is not operating as a nation state. It's operating as an empire. And when we look at client states of empires, be they formal client states like British Honduras uh, is of Britain at the time, or as Honduras is of the United States at the time, um, whatever they are de jure, de facto, they're part of large scale imperial systems. But the denial of that is central to the project of liberal nationalism. So the fact that at its core, liberal nationalism involves misdescribing the political order in which it situates people, it's not surprising that it takes people a while to develop a language for contesting it. Because liberal nationalism greets you right in 1823 going, Look at all of these equal, independent, self-sufficient states on the world scene. Let's think about them as autonomous, self-governing actors. Uh, when we know that this is not how the, most of these states operate, only extraordinarily powerful nation states even get to impersonate such a thing um, as the, head, as the uh, heads of global empires. So initially, um, what you had in the 19th century were two competing worldviews of how the world should be ordered. The liberal worldview was that the world should be full of autonomous, autochthonous uh, nation states that made their decisions democratically and had their borders open because they believed in the open door and capitalism and freedom. That was the liberal view put forward by Napoleon and Thomas Jefferson. The conservative view, we've, we've forgotten what it even was. It was put forward by a guy named Clemens von Metternich. Um, 
And uh, he was an Austro-Hungarian duke uh, who developed a theory for what made states legitimate. And unfortunately, two countries read his handbook and followed his instructions precisely to make their states legitimate. They both did so in 1923, Mexico and Greece. Um, Mexico and Greece were plagued with chronic governance problems as a result of agreeing to the Metternich model. The Metternich model argued that legitimacy comes from your state's rule by a royal family, uh, by an aristocratic family that could trace its ancestry to central Germany in the past thousand years. Uh, Metternich believed that um, People of different ranks in society should be tried in different courts, educated in different school systems, and subject to different bodies of law. Um, these reforms were incorporated very unhelpfully into the Greek and Mexican constitutions in 1823 for them to be recognized by the great powers of Europe. Anyway, Menonite's model really didn't hang together all that well because it required that little client states go and find themselves a European prince to go and be their king. And European princes of the mid 19th century had better things to do than go and be the prince of Mexico or the prince of Greece for the most part. Um, and uh, so this problem remained. Liberals had a hegemonic definition of what globalization was. And we begin to see that hegemony falling apart, not because of its instability or, or, or anything competing with it, but because it has to completely cover the waterfront philosophically. Uh, during the lead up to the Spanish-American War, America is really at the peak of fearing the closure of the frontier. They've made it to the Pacific Ocean in the United States. They watched the Berlin Conference happen in 1896 and Africa got divided up. They dealt with their insecurities over that by seizing the Kingdom of Hawaii the next year. And uh, there they are at the end of the 19th century. And they're beginning to debate what to incorporate into the country next following the Spanish-American War. And here we see the two great American tendencies for how they understand um, their overall world system. There are what we might think of as the optimistic imperialists. Uh, these are guys like Teddy Roosevelt, who get their volunteers and stampede their horses onto the island of Cuba and shoot off their guns and announce that America has freed Cuba. The idea in the minds of guys like Teddy Roosevelt is that America is just going to be constantly opening new, new states, new borders, new businesses. They're just going to be out there freeing people. Um, they're going to be occupied with this for decades to come. Opposing that, we see the rise of the other kind of American expansionist, the pessimistic American expansionist. And although he is a complex political figure, and there's no way to encapsulate all of his political views into this single characterization, I believe the most convenient person to talk about as that pessimistic American is Henry Cabot Lodge Sr. Now, at this time, for the first, um, really, I guess until, until the 1950s, uh, the United States sectional system believed that um, there were great Northern intellectuals and great Southern intellectuals and all fundamental national questions would be debated between these great men. The general feeling was that all of these great men in the South came from South Carolina and all of these great men in the North came from Massachusetts. And this 
encourage the already incipient property in American representative politics of these sort of senatorial dynasties. So you have Adlai Stevenson Sr. and Adlai Stevenson Jr., um, you know, Prescott Bush, George H.W. Bush, George W. Bush. Uh, those, a lot of those traditions that we associate the Bushes with got in place because of not this idea of merely every state having its guise, but there being a certain lineage that was a repository of the esteemed constitutional positions associated with these founding states in the original Federalist Papers. So Henry Cabot Lodge, uh, chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, prominent Republican, not always in accord with the regime, uh, really a separate locus of foreign policy power. Lodge supported the Spanish-American War. It was his last great act as an optimistic expansionist. But let me just describe the position of those who were pessimistic expansionists that he had to bring along. Those guys had one concern out of the Spanish-American War, which was that Cuba and Puerto Rico would never reach a white majority population. And the rule had been that no territory had been admitted into the United States without a white majority population. That's why New Mexico, although it's annexed to the U.S. in 1844, remains a territory until the 20th century, while Utah becomes a, um, a state almost immediately. Uh, if once your, once your territory's white population exceeded its native population, that was when statehood was conferred traditionally. The feeling was, and even the optimistic expansionists are upset about this, Teddy Roosevelt is trying to ban birth control in America at this time on the grounds that uh, what if we don't achieve a white demographic majority in the states we have just seized from uh, Spain? What if we don't do so in Hawaii? What if we're forced to admit Hawaii and Alaska without this job done in the 1950s? Wouldn't that be a horrible thing? Uh, so from the beginning then, whether you're looking at Napoleon or you're, or you're looking at the United States or you're looking at Simon Bolivar, Simon Bolivar wrote one constitution for one Latin American state at the end of all those revolutions. Only one invited him to rule. It was the state of Bolivia. And it's important to note that its constitution contains two very separate definitions, citizen and Bolivian with citizens comprising no more than about 8% of Bolivians. This idea, this fear, because Bolivar's constitution was based on whiteness and property, but this fear grew stronger in America as ideas of legislative requirements for property for voting or legislated racial requirements for voting, as those things are going out of vogue, it's at this moment that this pessimistic American school is appearing, which is this idea that America will be forced to be tyrants in these territories because they won't be able to achieve a white demographic majority. You can see how they're thinking about how people uh, who are not like them are likely to govern themselves. And we, of course, see this is contemporaneous with the banana republic system and the ideology of the open door. Uh, it's the um, it's American pessimistic expansionism that's really governing Latin America at this time. Americans are reducing the political independence of their vassal states as the century turns and they enter the 20th century because of this tremendous fear of what these primitive places will be like, these places that won't change, that won't become America. Now, this is, we know a little bit about the optics of Americans. 
we know a little bit about the optics of um, some other folks. How are Europeans looking at all this? Well, at the time, there are anti-imperialist Europeans and they are overwhelmingly Marxist. One of the positions that Marxists have begun to take, even though it doesn't come out of anything Lenin writes during this period, Marxists begin to take the position that free trade among Marxist countries is going to be important. But even though there are no Marxist countries yet, um, this liberal idea that breaking down rules and restrictions of opening these doors, this is such a powerful idea it pretty much monopolizes the minds of communists as well. It's really not until Emmanuel Celaya becomes a global figure that we see a true anti-globalization politics. So I'd mentioned the Mexican revolution, it's a complex process, starts in 1908. There are many different armies involved. I have to tell you just a little bit about it uh, for our purposes here. And I introduced it to you a bit last episode. Told you some of the main characters. Um, here are the important ones. Um, there is uh, Madero, who is the uh, presidential candidate who is originally running for president uh, on a liberal ticket who gets taken out physically. He's, um, he's taken out in 1909. He's taken out by Porfirio Diaz, the old army general in his 70s, who largely inherited Mexico from Benito Juarez, its first liberal president, and has become very rich running an authoritarian regime that effectively turns Northern Mexico into an American owned sharecropping plantation. We have Venustiano Carranza and Alvaro Obregón. They're um, generals from Northern Mexico who do very well. Most of the players in the game are Northern Mexicans, the ones who do very well for very strange reasons that are for another course. There is the most romantic of these leaders, Pancho Villa, the bandit leader of Northern Mexico, who's a charismatic um, organized crime figure. There is Venustiano Carranza. He also runs a Northern army. He's pretty popular. The Americans think that he will give them back more of their land than any of the others, except for Victoriano Huerta, who has ascended to be the head of the Mexican army and is the puppet ruler of Mexico on behalf of the German Kaiser Wilhelm as we move into the 1910s. Um, the uh, Germans had put crazy work into monopolizing Mexico's debt over the previous 40 years and effectively controlled uh, the Mexican debt by 1908. This is from a standing start when the French were forced to withdraw from Mexico in 1864. So why are these guys relevant? Well, Emiliano Zapata, as I was saying last class, represents a multi-generational struggle of the Mayan people to regain control of their territory in present-day Guatemala and Mexico. Uh, the Mayan people are a vibrant group speaking many languages, numbering in the millions. Uh, they're split roughly evenly between the countries of Mexico and Guatemala. Um, one of the features of Mayan history is their rapid and enthusiastic embrace of Christianity upon their first contact with it. 
a very common story in the uh, in Mesoamerica, not very common elsewhere in the Americas. And there's a simple reason for that. Um, the most sacred act in uh, Mayan and uh, Nahuatl-speaking uh, religious communities before the Spanish arrived was cannibalism. Um, Christianity is about the democratization of cannibalism, of taking a right enjoyed by only the highest office holders in the land and giving it to the common people using magic. Uh, there may be other reasons, but I, I, I think that actually covers a lot of the waterfront for the 16th century. Um, what I can say is that the Mayans were so enthusiastic that when the missionaries returned a year later to see if they had continued in their orthodox, uh, absolutely, that, that they had continued in their orthodox uh, commitment to the church, they showed that in each village, the missionaries had village, they had found um, the most vigorous youth in the village and crucified him. Um, so anything I should point out is the Mayans have already had their, always had their own take on Christianity and they've got a lot of confidence in it. Uh, now, under, when the Spanish had been in power before the liberals got hold of Mexico, most of the Mayans lands had been held in one of two forms. They had been held by the church and the uh, Mayan people had paid their tribute in maize and other crops to the churches that owned their lands, or they were ancient tenures of land that um, had been set up uh, um, during Spanish colonization to recognize the pre-existing land rights of indigenous nobles. In other words, these, their tenure to the land went back to before the Spanish conquest, but had been readjusted a little bit by it. it. And one of the features, not of Mayan culture, but of the culture to the north, the larger one, Nahua culture, the culture that all the famous city-states of Mexico come from, Tlaxcala and Tenochtitlan and uh, Texcoco, uh, these are all these ancient Nahuatl speaking city states. And in the Nahuatl language, um, they'd actually, um, there was a whole literary genre that was 200 years old by the 19th century showing um, what we might think of as creatively produced land deeds. Um, showing that uh, people had been assigned their land by Jesus, by Cortez, by the Virgin Mary, by uh, any number of important personages whose signatures were right there on these land deeds. Um, so the Mayans had long been prosecuting a war. Since the moment Mexico came into being, when the United Provinces of Central America came into being, they tried to create a country after which this institute is named, the Republic of Los Altos, which existed for two years in uh, present-day Guatemala. But uh, the um, Mayan people had prosecuted from the beginning of the state of Mexico, something called the caste war in the South, uh, where their armies had been commanded by a telepathic talking cross, um, which had inflicted a series of devastating defeats on the Mexican army. Uh, now, by the 1910s, the Mayans Hundred Year War became part of the Mexican Revolution with Emilio Zano Zapata's entry into the revolution. But Zapata did something that became contagious. He explained how they were holding all this land in the South, so improbably. And that was that as they seized plantations, they would give the land and the plantations away to the people telling it. Now, this is based on 
what Zapata felt God had asked him to do. God had told him to give these lands back to the people, to restore the lands that God had set aside for them. Uh, but there was also a military logic. The first person to see it was Pancho Villa, that everybody's losing money in a war. But if you convince the workers to go back to work, by telling them the farm is theirs now, then it goes back to work for you and it works harder for you than it did when it was owned by its previous owner. The great thing about land reform in a war is that it takes on a life of its own because it becomes contagious the armies that are giving land back to the people keep beating the armies that don't because they're the ones that are being supplied. They're the ones with new volunteer troops. They're the ones that are rallying Mexicans to something that they can identify with as a political project. And that political project is the restoration of the land tenure and the communities that they have lost after 60 years of privatization. So by the time the, now had things in Europe not become difficult, the United States um, would never have allowed the Mexican revolution to complete. In 1916, Pancho Villa came up with one of the most brilliant military maneuvers uh, ever. He was down to 300 men from an army size of 22,000. Um, his back was against the wall and um, he um, uh, was cornered by his adversaries whose armies numbered in the tens of thousands. So, understanding uh, the spirit of the times, he invaded the United States. Uh, he attacked Columbus, New Mexico. And you can count on the Americans for some things. It's 1916, Pancho Villa, this man of indeterminate race has attacked the United States as Mexican revolutionary. Well, naturally they put a price on his head and send a column of 16,000 men to look for him in an arid mountainous country where they're all hated. You would think they would only do that once. Uh, but no, obviously, yes, obviously sending an expedition of tens of thousands of guys to blunder around in the mountains for years uh, it never gets old. So um, uh, once Pancho Villa had become the greatest threat to American democracy and the subject of a 16,000 person manhunt, volunteers flocked to his army from all sides. He had 25,000 men within a few months. Uh, and this kind of, this, um, and so you can see how the United States, having not caught Pancho Villa, um, having watching Emiliano Zapata and Pancho Villa hand out their land, millions and millions of dollars worth of their land to Mexican peasants, might have annoyed them had they not had to go and fight the First World War in Europe suddenly the sinking of the Lusitania and the uh, American narrative of the need to enter into the First World War in order to enjoy the spoils of that war, which were considerable, pulled the United States out of Mexico and meant that America would now have to suffer with a revolutionary army winning the war. Now, Venustiano Carranza, won the war. He was the most conservative and the most opposed to land reform. But without American troops at his back, he had had no choice but con to conduct land reform 
on hundreds of thousands of acres of land, which meant that he was effectively tied into land reform. And the land reform became the purpose of the Mexican state in its initial phase. The seizure of lands that had been held by the church led to a six-year civil war called the Cristero War. Uh, the Knights of Columbus got into drug, drug run, uh, pardon me, uh, gun running for this. The Knights of Columbus would not have been able to help the IRA nearly as much had they not spent seven years running guns to Mexico in the 20s. But the society that's going on in Mexico in the 20s, it's contemporaneous with the first decade after the Russian Revolution. But the conversations people are having in Mexico are not the conversations they're having in Russia. They're not about what's going to happen when Mexico becomes some kind of global power that imposes its way on everyone else. Mexican conversations are much more about what are what is the thing that we're doing instead of globalization. So they amend their constitution to more securely protect their land so that the Americans can never take their land again. And it's not just Leon Trotsky, there are all kinds of global intellectuals who begin preferring Mexico City to Moscow during the 1920s. And out of Mexico City, what we see is the beginning of a larger global vision, one that I think we underappreciate the amount of work done theorizing this in Mexico City uh, in the interwar period. Uh, I think that um, there are lots of other places that we look, but the thing, but the first place I see it coalescing is in Mexico City, when you have characters like Manuel Gamio and these other great social scientists trying to talk about what it is that they're building in Mexico and how people in other places can do something like it. And the term that um, I think we need to use, the only thing that I think really stands as an oppositional term to globalization and is consistent as a politics whenever we see globalization being coherently opposed is villagization. So in Mexico, one of the features of the res restoration of the ejido, um, this old form of land tenure from the days of the Spanish empire uh, is this sense that it's on a small scale. Um, so indigenous people have lost their hereditary lands. The government has to create a process to give them back. And the ejido is a multi-decade process that does that. You have to come to the government with a cooperative that has a vision for a cooperative enterprise that will also be profitable. So you, your co-op, you can register your co-op and your co-op can be a thing, but your co-op doesn't get land unless you've engaged to some degree in demonstrating to the government that this is not just going to be economically productive, it's going to be socially cohesive. And it's that vision of land reform um, that we see really catching on when we move ahead a few decades. So in the, in the 19, uh, in the 1920s and 30s, you've got a handful of utopian states in the world. Um, the USSR, Mexico, Mongolia, uh, and um, I, I, I think uh, Palestine 
Um, and we see in all of these places uh, an immediate, a, a real confrontation with the land question. In the places dominated by Joseph Stalin, we see real problems with the idea of local people controlling their land, making decisions about it, planning into the future about it, and collectively owning it in ways that aren't brokered by the state. In Mexico um, and in Mandatory Palestine, um, we see quite different things. Now, Mandatory Palestine is not the beginning of the great kibbutz experiment in um, Palestine uh, that, take that, that, that really begins in 1859 when the Ottoman Empire um, is short of foreign currency and sells off grazing land and other land by, uh, held by Bedouin and other uh, semi-sedentary peoples in Palestine. Uh, it's the Ottoman Empire, not the British Empire that invites uh, the Zionist movement into Palestine. That, uh, that should be made very clear. But one is hard pressed to find other movements in the interwar period that are talking about what kind of system of relationships can hold the people of the world together that is clearly not this thing we think of as globalism or globalization. Um, so the Kibbutzim movement is an important one to look at, although they really efface where their land is coming from, they are interested in adapting to those ecosystems, not in hyper-irrigation, but in trying to figure out how to do, um, you know, dry land horticulture, dry land uh, animal husbandry, things like this in the 20s and 30s. Another place that we want to look for this villagization movement outside of Mexico, we, um, we see it in the Mohandas Gandhi faction of the Indian National Congress. Uh, Gandhi, uh, particularly Gandhi's trip to the sea, I would argue is one of the most important, it's a watershed moment in anti-globalization protest, because it actually starts to describe alternative uh, systems of relationship that um, uh, in, a, in, a, in a way that, 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 that is, can be seen in adversarial terms. So, right, when it's easy to see Pancho Villa's men or Emiliano Zapata's men um, you know, showing up at a plantation compound, firing off a few rifles. Most of the acts of taking control, though, are symbolic because the people farming in those foreign-owned plantations, all they're going to do is make the tools they've been using their own, make the farmland they've been using their own. There isn't this kinetic, dramatic thing that Gandhi is able to produce in his March to the Sea in 1930 that really, I think, begins to tell us um, <clears throat> some of the crucial characteristics of globalization. Gandhi marches to the sea because uh, the British are industrial salt producers. Salt is incredibly labor intensive to harvest from the sea. Um, and so because of the additional labor demands that they're pressing on Indian communities, forcing more money out of Indian households, uh, making um, husbands work at the factory or do voluntary militia service, have the women do their husband's work. One of the first things to go is that long march to the sea and back. So Gandhi marches thousands of Indian women to the sea to reconnect with the original salt harvesting practices and bring the salt back to their communities. Um, 
it's here that we start to see some of the corners of what an anti-globalization movement really means. The importance of people using a scale, the lowest scale of technology possible, the most proximate technology. Um, they're using practices that they recognize that don't go into some black box they don't understand. This is just people collecting salt with cloth and drying it in the sun. And uh, Gandhi, right, he suggested like, this is the thing the British empire fears the most that no one will buy their beads, no one will buy their salt. Uh, ultimately the British, he's able to provoke the British into killing people for getting their own salt. I think one of the things that people really don't think about with King and Gandhi is in order to do that kind of work responsibly, you basically got to get pre-existing authorization from people that it's okay to let them get killed. Because the thing about nonviolence, the reasons it's successful in certain contexts and not others, is that it preys upon people's theory of how they're a good person. You can't use nonviolence on someone unless you understand what their theory of personal honor is. Because if their theory of personal honor doesn't include not shooting you in the face, your nonviolence is not going to work. Um, nonviolence only works against people capable of experiencing shame. And it also means, though, that the way that you've got a pretty good idea that some of the people you're marching out there who've done nothing wrong are going to experience violence that's not part of the agreement, that your way of mobilizing other people's ethics inheres in their people not living up to those ethics. Um, my, my mentor, David Lewis, on the other hand, would always just go for the shortest Gandhi quote he knew, which is, given a choice between violence and national humiliation, I would always choose violence. So uh, anyway, Gandhi is really important here. There's a lot of ways that people make sentimental and spiritual and religious connections between Gandhi and modern anti-globalization efforts. But Gandhi's March to the Sea in 1930 shows the connection between anti-globalization and anti-imperialism. It shows the lie of how being a country somehow insulates you. Uh, it's like, no, you're part, of, you're part of this imperial system. It doesn't matter what political jurisdiction you're in here. You've got to buy, you know, you've got to buy your salt from these people. They're exercising their power, not because they run India, but because they run another country called the United Kingdom. Uh, so that's important. Um, a feature that has tended to be true of, of anti-globalization movements that has caused us to struggle at various times is that they are necessarily associated with traditional communities, traditional modes of living and traditional modes of interacting with the economy. So when you see something like Occupy Wall Street, this is like a programmed failure. If you've stripped all tradition out of anti-globalization, so much of its heft, so much of its substance is then not present. Uh, so Gandhi's walk is important on that basis. When we look at the future of the anti-globalization movement, its smartest moments tend to be smarter than other people's smartest moments because they have to focus on a moment of connection. And I mean this in the sense of James Burke's old connection series. Globalism makes certain economic activities possible 
through improbable forms of sudden connection. And so when we're able to, and we do our best in exposing what globalization is, when we show that connection and show how it can be different. And again, that's what Gandhi does in the March to the Sea. He shows that there are these salt mines in England that are connected to these women running homes in India whose husbands are working looms at the jute mill. Um, and he's able to put that together in a visual way. The other thing that um, we tend to see with anti-globalization as opposed to mere nationalist movements is that um, it's hard to find sustained anti-globalization movements that lean solely on nationalist sensibilities. So you'll notice that Gandhi isn't just making a nationalist claim there about the salt. He's making a socialist claim. He's making a feminist claim. He's even, uh, you know, if one accelerated a few decades into the future, making an environmental claim. Uh, now the last, uh, yeah. So one of the other things then that, um, um, that we deal with is there's this connection between anti-globalism and alter-globalism, and there's a connection um, between globalism and neo-traditionalism and nationalism. I've talked about neo-traditionalism a fair bit in other courses. Uh, obviously, it's well illustrated with the Gandhi uh, moment, this recovery of a traditional activity that they thought modernity had exiled to the past. And he goes, no, modernity didn't kill this salt harvest, globalism did. Uh, now, um, so yeah, so there are these interesting relationships to what we might think of as gathering movements. I suggested that um, ideas about living in villages, of there being a global village order, show up very quickly in British Mandatory Palestine in the 1920s in the kibbutzim movement. Uh, we, um, uh, but uh, also want to draw your attention to uh, other movements. Uh, Mormonism similarly has a very interesting footprint in globalism. It is clearly a form of alter globalism. Uh, and it's interesting to note how much ideas of alter globalism will fetishize a pre-industrial rural life. Line I want to leave you with when we start thinking about these women marching to the sea, about uh, the people working in the Mexican ejidos. Um, there's a uh, uh, what was the what was the thing I was going to leave you with? Damn it! Um, oh. there's. Um, Yeah, we, we need an element of disquiet about that, right? There is, oh yeah, that's where I was going. There is, in most forms of alter-globalism, an apocalypticism. Um, you certainly get it with Chinese anti uh, and Marxist anti-globalism, right? Where after we've globalized, all the problems are supposed to have been solved by then. We're free and clear. Uh, I think that there, and you get an, a very extreme version in it in Murray Bookchin's Social Ecology, when he states that once the world has fully villagized, every, the, the least intelligent person will be smarter than the smartest person on earth. Uh, and these other really quite enthusiastic um, claims just out of nowhere. Uh, there's, um, uh, yeah, so, it's useful to recognize that when we um, when we look at forms of alter globalism, um, sometimes people are trying to have a real conversation with us about the other way villages can be, 
And sometimes they're describing an eschaton. They're describing an apocalyptic vision of a perfect future. And I've, um, uh, and I've remembered the line I wanted to leave you guys with. Uh, it was a great piece on um, uh, people's sense of agricultural renewal with the Tea Party movement. Uh, and the, the, the author of the magazine article said, not since Maoism's uh, great leap forward has a modern movement been so convinced that it can build a backyard steel mill. So, uh, which is true. The Tea Party did try to build a bunch of backyard steel mills. Uh, it was one of its odd similarities to the great leap forward. So, um, yeah, anyway, questions, comments. I noticed that, that people typed a bit when I was talking about how transubstantiation works to, uh, you know, the unschooled eye. But yeah, basically you can convert tortillas into human flesh, uh, <laughs> yeah. which is a pretty cool trick. <laughs> yeah, pretty amazing. Well, and you could see how it would completely upend uh, the previous hierarchical religious order. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's like a synergy there, right? Like if anyone can have as much human flesh as they want, because we know this magic trick, yeah. then this is going to be pretty worthless pretty fast. <laughs>